This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. In 1886, the federal government opened the Teller Indian School for American Indian Children on the outskirts of Grand Junction. Kids from a dozen Indian nations were sent to the school where they were stripped of their native customs, their language, even their given names. And at least 23 died and were buried in a long-lost campus cemetery. An archaeology professor wants to locate that cemetery and preserve it, but he's in a race against time. Colorado Mesa University Assistant Professor John Seabach joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to the program. Uh, hi, thank you very much. So why are you racing the clock to find a cemetery that vanished so long ago? <laughs> uh, the property on which the, the cemetery sits or where the school once was is um, slated to be sold probably in 2020, May 2020 or something along those lines. And the most recent um, plan for it was to sell it privately. And so um, once it goes into private hands, uh, anything goes, I suppose. And so right now you're trying to find this cemetery because it's essentially on public land right now. It is. It's on the property is maintained by the Colorado Department of Human Services. It presently serves as the um, Grand Junction Regional Center, which is a residential facility for severely developmentally or physically disabled uh, patients. And so um, they are the state of Colorado is liquidating that property. They they no longer want to support it, and so all those uh, patients are being moved off. And um, once all this goes into effect, I will then go out onto the property and, and try to locate the cemetery using all methods I have at my disposal. So tell us about the Teller Indian School. It operated for about 25 years. And from your research, can you describe what life was like there? Life was hard at the Grand Junction School. Um, it was only one part of the of the larger off-reservation boarding school system. But it seems to have been one that was um, built and largely ignored uh, for the most part relative to the other schools in the system. The, um, there was always problems. There were always problems with the plumbing. Uh, some of the buildings had flooded. There was a typhoid breakout um, along with another disease that affected um, the eyesight of many of the students there and uh, of the faculty. And so it was just uh, off in the corner of the world um, – doing its thing. It was about uh, three miles from downtown Grand Junction while it was functioning. And that was all on dirt roads, of course. And so it was sort of separate from the community, yet part of the community. Uh, and life there would go from, you know, awful with the typhoid breakouts and flooded buildings and all that kind of stuff, uh, uh, plumbing backing up, to um, sublime. There were several athletic teams that were very popular in town, both the boys football and boys baseball teams were of note and people, townspeople would go and watch the, uh, watch the games as just their, their weekend entertainment. In addition, there was a girls mandolin band and that mandolin band got so popular that a union of musicians, the Colorado union of musicians actually tried to bring suit against the Indian school saying that the mandolin band was running them out of, uh, out of gigs because they were too good. Exactly. They were too good. Uh, so, you know, there was the, there was the good side and there was the bad side and, and, uh, you know, native peoples will tell you the same thing. There was always, there's the, the awful of having their, their culture ripped away from them. But then there was also a set of experiences that, um, that any young 
child or teenager would have enjoyed. Because the goal of that school was to give the students the equivalent of an of an eighth grade education. And, and I've, I've read that it was because people didn't believe they had the capacity to learn beyond that level. <laughs> yes, indeed. The, the whole point was to get them up to an eighth grade literacy level while also teaching them a trade. And so uh, the, the trade component was part of a, a larger, what they called an outing program. And so both boys and girls would be trained in some sort of, uh, of job. And for boys, it was usually blacksmithing, ranching, uh, metalwork of some kind, those sorts of things. And for girls, it was um, being domestic help or laundresses. And so once they were trained, they would be sent out to people's homes uh, wherever the school was located. So here in the Grand Valley, they, the girls were sent into town while the boys were sent out to some of the, the orchards and ranches, um, you know, in and around the surrounding area. And they would work and earn, an, uh, earn a wage. And then that wage would come back to the school and go into a personal account and they would be able to spend it as they see fit. So really... The educational component was definitely, or the literacy component was definitely part of the deal, but really it was more about trying to get American Indians working in a, um, in a capacity that was recognized as valid by dominant Euro-American culture. And, 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 and in fact, off the reservation. Uh, Ernest House yes. Jr. is the executive director of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs, and he's a member of the mm-hmm. Ute Mountain Ute tribe. He says the boarding schools are a sad chapter for American Indians to revisit. Well, I think it represents a very dark, a very dark time, a very dark chapter, uh, specifically for American Indian history, not only in the state, but throughout the United States. Uh, where Native American children were forced to attend, in many cases uh, removed from their families, or well, in all situations removed from their families, their culture, uh, even removing, cutting their hair, uh, forced them not to to uh, talk their native language. So it's very much a, a difficult uh, process and, and, a, and, a, and a, a difficult chapter um, for our Native communities and and our tribes to, to have a discussion about. Were these young people forced to attend the school? I mean, they had several cells at the school that, that kids who tried to run away were, were locked up in these cells. That is true. And yes, attendance was more or less compulsory. And the Indian agents of the time would go um, along the, you know, into the reservations that they were in charge of and basically gather children up, just as uh, Mr. House was saying, um, gather children up and put them on trains and, and send them off to school uh, to never, you know, to not see their parents for a couple of years or more. You want to find this cemetery and you've poured over records and confirmed that 23 students died at the school, but the records are very short on details, I understand. Do you know they how are. these students died? Do you have an exact cause of death? In many, in many cases I do. I would say for about half of them, I have cause of death. And, um, the typhoid breakout in 1910 was a big one. Um, but there were also just, you know, the medical care at the time. So there was a young man who injured his leg playing baseball, uh, reportedly in a slide to second base and, um, his leg got infected and he died of sepsis. And then there were others who drowned in the river. Um, there were two others that drowned in the river. And then many, many more that just say no cause or that don't have a cause of death noted. Um, in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., I did run across several records of, um, of students who are reportedly interred there that 
sources in the Grand Valley do not have. So the actual number of of people in the cemetery hovers around two dozen or a little more, but I really don't have a, a solid number for you. And why weren't these graves preserved over the years? Was it neglect or, or was there another reason? Absolutely neglect. Um, when the school closed in 1911, there was a lot of discussion of what the what was going to happen to the property. And the very first thing that was going to happen was that CSU, then the Agricultural College, was going to take over that property for a satellite campus. And the president of CSU came out himself to inspect the property, Charles Lorry, and he decided that the property was not fit for CSU's use and so decided to, to back out of that deal. And then that basically led off a whole decade of um, that property sitting unused. And again, all those plumbing problems and everything just sort of backed up on one another. The Several of the buildings were condemned. Um, and then they were vandalized pretty heavily uh, from all reports. The people in Grand Junction who knew the property was was sitting vacant would come out and steal chairs and uh, plumbing facilities and conduit and you know other things that were that were left behind. And, and that makes um, finding probably these to use in their own homes. Yeah, that just makes it finding mm-hmm. them a very sensitive matter. I mean, even though your mission is not to disturb the bodies in any way only to locate the cemetery, you still need approval from tribes as well as permission from the state. I want to bring in Ernest House again, director of the Colorado Commission of Indian Affairs. Well, I think from a historical standpoint and a cultural standpoint, any type of um, traditional areas with potential sites that hold Native American human remains, cultural sites, um, objects, any type of of area that's, that's sacred like that or is presented as sacred, um, needs to be identified. It needs to be discussed. And I think that's where we are right now with trying to gather that information, figure out what information is there in not only Dr. Seabatch's project, but then also uh, inviting tribes to that consultation process. So you're, you're actually looking at using cadaver dogs to try to locate that cemetery. How soon might that happen? This summer, hopefully, uh, there's going to be a cadaver dog training here in Grand Junction uh, with what, that one of my colleagues runs. And uh, I'm hoping to maybe commandeer some of those dogs for an afternoon and have them uh, have them go out to parts of the campus away from the residents, as well as a, a vacant lot that's uh, that's nearby. There are town rumors that there might, the cemetery might actually be in that vacant lot. And so see what the cadaver dogs find. And if they don't find anything, then we'll move to uh, magnetometry and ground-penetrating radar and other non-invasive techniques. And briefly, what if you find the cemetery? What, what are you going to do then? My ideal goal is to have the cemetery fenced and, of course, removed from any potential sale. I would very much like to work with the State Historical Commission on getting some signage out there, some public interpretation, so that the uh, the children who underwent um, this this Western education can be honored and uh, and that experience never forgotten in the Grand Valley, Colorado, or the U.S. at large. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. John Seabach is an associate professor of archaeology at Colorado Mesa University. He's hoping to locate and preserve a lost cemetery at an historic American Indian boarding school. He enjoyed us from our studio in Grand Junction. <laughs> Being a veteran is something Mark Fitzsimmons wrestles with. He says it can feel like a burden, 
and those struggles with his identity show up in his art. Fitzsimmons' latest work is called Identification, Please, Flag Piece, a nearly 13-mile walk, most of it with a weighted flag. CPR arts reporter Stephanie Wolf followed the artist through Denver. Artist Mark Fitzsimmons has been walking for more than two hours, and he's starting to feel it. My sciatic nerves kind of acting up, so my right thigh, back of it, kind of feels like there's a razor in it. He's dressed in white jeans, combat boots, and has an American flag draped around his shoulders. He sewed iron sand weights into the flag's red stripes. Historically, the red has been said to represent hardness and valor. Fitzsimmons sees it differently. The red stripes represent the blood that was shed for the American flag. Fitzsimmons says carrying this 43-pound flag signifies the weight he feels as a veteran. Even when I take this flag off, the burden is still going to be there. Fitzsimmons' work, Identification Please, meditates on public perceptions of veterans in war and his responsibilities to adhere to those. He began walking in northeast Denver, making his way through the neighborhoods of Curtis Park and Five Points into downtown Denver, by the state capitol and past the Denver City and County Building, along the 16th Street Mall, through the Sloan's Lake neighborhood and eventually into Lakewood. Many people stared. Some even took photos with their phones. Nobody asked Fitzsimmons what he was doing, though at least one person asked his friend who was along to help film this walk. Fitzsimmons joined the Army in 2007 as a medic. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan and was honorably discharged in 2014. He says he felt lost when he left the military, and he suffered from PTSD. There were times when I was in real crisis and family members got mad at me. I mean, that was just their own response, too, because they didn't know how to help. But you're surrounded by familiar faces, but you are a total stranger to them, to yourself. Fitzsimmons says making art has helped him cope. I'm Stephanie Wolf. CPR News. And artist Mark Fitzsimmons joins me in the studio. Mark, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Where does this burden you feel as a veteran come from? Well, it comes from uh, the war that I knew I was fighting. The war I was fighting was to try and save lives. I wasn't too worried about uh, what side those lives were on because when it comes down to it, no matter where you're at on the planet, you're a victim of war. And even the guys that were that I was working with and serving with, they, as much as they believed in what they were doing, and they were right, righteous in their beliefs, that doesn't mean I uh, approved of the idea that war was the right answer. And you say you're uncomfortable when someone says, thanks for your service. Why, yeah. Why is that? More often than not, uh, somebody's thanking me for the violence that I had, le- that I had possibly perpetrated. Uh, there are people that they thank me and I can see that they're like, oh, hey, thank you. I could not have done that. And I know that uh, you had, just like I'm saying about the guys I served with, we had the best of intentions when we went in. Uh, that I appreciate. But sometimes we were like, oh, man, thank you for your service. I, you know, I watched this movie or that movie. And they get this like idea or this thought that my job over there was to go kick somebody's butt and they were happy about that. And that hurts me a little bit. Can that be isolating somehow? Oh, yeah. Uh, Especially when I first got out, uh, 
because I was really trying to actively engage in a community, actively engage with my family. And You're I returning home. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know the language anymore. Like it was, it was total jargon from the military, the body language, the, the way we interacted with each other uh, was totally different than the civilian world. And does all that then wrap into this this piece of art that, that you've done? I mean, is that what you hope to convey when you walked between Denver and Lakewood? Yeah, it is. And uh, a part of it, too, is the kind of uh, relationships that, that we have with that symbol. Is somebody going to be offended by what I did? Is somebody going to be appreciative of what I did? And either way, hopefully that's telling uh, the viewer something about themselves and about how they view the symbols of America. Was somebody offended by what you did, do you think? Yeah. Uh, you, you think or you know that people were offended? Uh, I I have good assumptions. Hmm. Uh, I know that before I did the did the walk, before I, uh, I hung the flag and kind of let it uh, rest on the ground, uh, I had other veterans that one of them just kind of walked away from me hmm. when I said what I was going to do. Uh, I know that some of the... Oddly enough, when I got to the campus of the art school is when I started getting the uh, – or noticing the dirty looks. Why do you think that is? I, I, I think that some people feel a uh, – that the symbol needs defending more than the idea. And is that what you wanted to maybe have happen, to have some people be offended by what you did? Yeah, because I want them to be able to uh, introspectively look at their knee-jerk reactions to – how somebody treats a symbol. And this flag weighed 43 pounds. Yes. Uh, is there a significance with that number? Uh, yeah. The, uh, to graduate from elite military schools, uh, you have to carry a, uh, a sack or your rucksack. Like a backpack? Type yeah. Of yeah. Your yeah. backpack has to have at least 43 pounds and you have to complete 12 kilometers in three hours. And so that's the weight that you attempted to, to put on that flag? Yes. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with Denver artist Mark Fitzsimmons about his latest performance piece, Identification, Please. He walked through Denver and Lakewood for nearly 13 miles, the bulk of it with a weighted flag. What's the name? What's what's the name? Identification, please. What's with that? Oh, well, when I think about the uh, the division in our countries now, like people want to know where you stand on this. What is this thing? But in reality, everything is so much more nuanced. Where I am, uh, like people will hear that I say uh, that being a veteran is a burden. In reality, it's it it is a burden, but it's a burden that I proudly carry. That I'm very happy with what I did. So it, it, there's much more nuance there, but we don't seem to have nuance in our national discourse right now. And you walk through Five Points, Curtis Park, Sloan's Lake, into Lakewood. Why did you decide on this route? Uh, it. It gave me a chance to walk through a wide variety of neighborhoods and a wide variety of people. I wanted to get uh, the uh, the kind of coterie of American public as I was walking through. And no one approached you on this walk. I mean, some people stopped and stared, but but no one asked you what you were doing. How did you feel about that? Uh, I I wish people would have come up to me, but I at the same time I, what, I think, what would you have said to them if they had been like, well, "What's going on here?" I, I would have explained to them that uh, exactly what I've been explaining to you yeah. too is the uh, that that this is uh, it's a burden to try and uh, hold up some of these ideas that a lot of people misunderstand. Do you feel the uh, the visual presentation of the work left people with the impression you'd hoped for? 
Uh, yes. And because I don't think that there was a wrong way for you to look at what I was doing. Uh, I may disagree with how you looked at it, but that was also kind of the point. If I disagreed with it, I would love to have had a conversation with you. But I'm assuming that's what performance art is essentially, uh, yeah. what, what we view it as. Yeah. 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 Will you try the walk again? I think so. Uh, and I think I'll put a little bit more weight in it uh, this next time. Make the flag heavier. Yeah, and make a larger flag. And uh, I think one of the reasons, too, people didn't approach me is because I had a nice little uh, entourage of, of film crew following me. Almost like a barrier, me. almost. It was. Uh, Do you and, think you'll have a, fili- a make a film crew next time? Or? Yes, but I'll, 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 I'll watch the, uh, their conspicuousness, I like see. try to make them a lo- stand back a little bit further and see what happens. You, you mentioned you raised the flag upside down of a flagpole that you made outside of the Philip J. Steele Gallery in Lakewood. The weight of the flag bent the pole. The flag touches the ground. Uh, it stayed that way uh, since your walk a week ago. Yeah. People could argue that this is disrespectful to the flag and to the military. I, and uh, I can appreciate that reading. Uh, and I don't think it's uh, – I don't think it is. I think that it is a uh, as an art job object. It's a comment on how we view symbols and how we are treating symbols. I think the symbol of the American flag right now is being it's having some issues because our uh, nation across the globe, uh, the popularity has kind of gone down, uh, especially very recently. The uh, when the American flag came into someone's country. 20, 30 years ago, there was a good a chance that we would actually be there to help. But right now, we're fighting wars to sustain more wars. So it's... How do you know that? Oh, uh, my deployments. Uh, Afghanistan was a wildly... Uh, I felt very, very proud of being in Afghanistan. I knew we were doing good there. Uh, when I was in Iraq in 2008, and there was a status of forces agreement change. And we weren't allowed to go out without Iraqi uh, uh, support. Uh, I kind of looked around and started watching, uh, seeing what we were doing. And it was just the war machine laid bare. And uh, we had government contractors doing literally every job. I had cooks watching other people cook. I had infantrymen sitting in barracks watching people guard the front gate. And it just seemed like we aren't here to do anything. We're here to sustain what and a continued war. Denver artist Mark Fitzsimmons, he's a performance artist, and his latest performance art piece is called Identification Please. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nathan. You can find photos later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Nick Petrie used to be a full-time home inspector and a part-time novelist. Today, leaky roofs and faulty electrical outlets are no longer a part of his life. That's because of the success he's found at the keyboard. Petrie is the author of a series of novels featuring an ex-Marine named Peter Ash. In his latest adventure, a novel called Light It Up, Ash finds himself in Colorado, enmeshed in the marijuana industry. Nick is joining us from WUWM Studios in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Welcome to Colorado Matters. 
Oh, thanks so much for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it. Well, this is the third book in the Peter Ash series. And as we said, it's set in Colorado's marijuana industry. But when you started it, that wasn't what you had in mind. What happened? Yeah, I, I originally intended to set this book in Detroit. And, and I work uh, differently from some uh, writers. I don't outline or, or plan ahead. I sort of start with a situation and write forward to see what happens. But mm-hmm. this this Detroit book just uh, sort of turned to, to mush. I, I kept writing that same uh, 10,000 words over and over again, which is a pretty good sign that something's uh, not quite right. Um, but at the same time, I'd, I'd had a, an interesting conversation um, with a guy in an airport that uh, sort of started this other story uh, sort of churning around in my head. And what was that story? So I, I met uh, uh, a guy just waiting for coffee in an airport and we started chatting and uh, he, he, this was in Phoenix and he was on his way to Portland um, to start uh, a cannabis grow. Um, this was uh, – I was just actually on tour for my first book, The Drifter. Um, and so it would become legal in uh, Oregon in about six months and he was you know, going ahead to do the advance work. And I said, uh, so gee, how do you uh, – you know, where did you get the expertise to do this? Because it's really uh, still relatively uh, new in terms of legality. It certainly was uh, back then. And he, I was expecting him to say, well, I, I, I ran a, a hothouse tomato outfit or I have a PhD in botany or, or something like that. And he, he sort of paused and he gave me this sly smile and he said, well, this will be my first legal cannabis grow. I see. Uh, so, so I, you know, I had uh, several hundred questions for him, and he very generously, you know, kind of told me his story, and and uh, some of those details uh, in 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 modified form found their way into the book, and it and it was a it was an opening into a world that I didn't know much about, and I was really interested in um, the the legalization of cannabis. For me, is fascinating. It's this giant social experiment um, that we're carrying out on such a grand scale. Um, so I, I it just I, this book sort of uh, fell into place. Um, and did you actually uh, come out here and, and do research with people in the industry? Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the things I feel very strongly about uh, doing research on the ground, and every book takes place in a different city, and so I need to go to those places and to see what they feel like, what they smell like. I'm very interested in in uh, setting as a character in a way. Um, so. To go stand, you know, in the street in Denver and see the Front Range uh, rising up. To go up to to Boulder and see the Flatirons and to <laughs> to smell pot smoke in the air pretty much everywhere. Um, that's important to me. So I, I talked um, I talked with protection folks. I talked with folks at uh, retail operations. I spoke with growers. Um, I went backpacking with my son in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park uh, again, just to sort of uh, try to capture that whole experience. And this idea of Denver as still kind of being the Wild West in terms of, of marijuana legalization was something that you worked into the book in a number of ways. Why was this important to you, this Wild West aspect of Denver? Well, it was kind of accidental. Um, I, I didn't really realize it was happening until I'd already sort of done a couple of uh, – uh, sort of made a couple of moves as a writer. Um, so they uh, – one of the, the uh, challenges is to uh, – you know, th- these are these are thrillers, so there's some violence. There's a lot of action. Um, the goal is to really keep readers, uh, you know, turning the pages on the edge of their seat. Um, so 
um, my main character, Peter Ash, needs to find uh, some weapons. And so he – but all they can find are some antique revolvers, um, some old cult peacemakers. And so that uh, sort of brought to mind this sort of frontier quality um, that Colorado has had for a long time. And it also echoes this sort of new frontier of legal cannabis, which is you know quite – quite fascinating to me. Well, and, and the weapons in the book certainly get used. I mean, in the first 63 pages, a half dozen people are killed. I mean, is that what it takes to write a bestseller these days? I, well, I, you know, this is actually the most violent of my three. And the, the, the one that I've just finished is, is considerably less so. But, it, it, you know, it's a, the story begins with an armed robbery that, that goes wrong. And, and there are consequences to that. And it's really one of the themes that I that I uh, right about my my character is a is a Marine Corps veteran. I was actually listening with great interest to your previous guest who talked about his performance art project and and the way he talks about his service and his experience in the war. I, I've heard from many many veterans um, that sort of a mixture of pride and, and shame, you know, pride in what you've done, but you know it's not it's not always perfect. And and that violence of serving in combat really. Uh, you know, carries through people's lives. Um, it's really hard to escape. I, I know folks who served in Vietnam who it's it's still with them every day. So, you know, that's one of the themes. And to try to talk about violence in a in a realistic way that where it has consequences. I mean, this is not somebody who you know gets to kill six people and not ever think about it again. Um, this is something that really haunts him. Um, so that's that's just sort of part of the part of what I'm interested in, and and we have a very complicated relationship with violence in America. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. We're talking with author Nick Petrie about his latest novel, Light It Up, which is set in the Colorado marijuana industry. Um, as we said, Peter Ash is an ex-Marine whose life is somewhat complicated because of PTSD, and that makes it virtually impossible for him to spend time indoors or in enclosed places. Uh, that's an interesting thing to, to, to link on with him. Well, one of the challenges, he's a very capable guy and I've met lots of veterans who are extremely capable people, uh, driven, motivated and, and Peter shares those qualities. But um, to have a main character, a protagonist in a, in a series of books that is a superhero for me was less interesting. So, so I had to give him some challenges and post-traumatic stress is something that's very much uh, an ongoing conversation in our society and I think it's something that's that's not going to go away for a long, long time. Um, so I was interested in, in talking about that um, and interested in sharing the experiences of these veterans I'd met and what they were dealing with. Um, but you know, if he were agoraphobic and couldn't go outside, for me, that's not a very uh, exciting book. You couldn't move very uh, so, many places. It's not, yeah, exactly. Well, you, you could you could you could write that book, but it wouldn't be it wouldn't be my book. Um, so, um, so, uh, and and again, being outside is is uh, one of the things that people do to help uh, with all sorts of stressful situations. Is to go is between exercise and the natural world. Um, there are some great veterans programs that do uh, long bike backpacking trips and, yeah. and hiking trips and biking trips. I, I want to get back to the, the, the actual – the heist that takes place. That's uh, something we really don't hear a lot about in the marijuana industry here in Colorado. What did you learn from people in the industry? Well, the, the, the 
the other piece of this book. So it's it's the cannabis industry, but it's also the cannabis protection industry, and and um, there is a thriving industry in Colorado uh, where veterans are working to help protect cannabis businesses from thieves, um, and it started with. Um, the medical marijuana, which has been around much longer, and they really pioneered some of these tactics um, because the, the 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 to me one of the most amazing pieces about this is that because of federal banking rules, um, these these recreational cannabis businesses have to deal entirely in cash. So right. they they pay their employees in cash, they pay their rent in cash, they have to pay their federal taxes in cash, which is just astonishing to me. But it also makes them a, a, quite a target. So between uh, mo moving this uh, very valuable product, um, pots basically anywhere between two to six thousand dollars a pound, depending on whether you're talking about depending on quality and whether you're talking about wholesale versus retail. Right. Um, so it's it, and it's lightweight, it's very portable, and then there's all of this cash. So um, growers and retailers have they have armed guards. They have to figure out kind of what to what to do with all of this valuable stuff. Um, so th there is not a huge history of robberies, but in part, I think um, that's because businesses are are quite careful. But it's also because uh, cannabis entrepreneurs historically are people who have lived outside the law and are not really comfortable calling the cops. And that's another reason why this connection with veterans uh, works very well, because veterans also, in a way, are sort of outside society, because we. As sort of you know, everyday mainstream Americans uh, aren't necessarily connected to uh, the world of the military the way that we were in the Vietnam era or the, the era of World War II when really everybody served. And all that ties together with with what your your book is really about. I want briefly final question. There's an especially potent cannabis strain, Klondike Gold, that's at the center of the book. We won't give away why, but how close is the industry to developing that sort of super product? Well. It, I was riffing off this idea that that uh, pot is getting stronger and stronger and stronger, um, and so I, I sort of took this uh, sort of a logical step farther to make it uh, something that was, uh, you know, almost. Sort of, and there are also all of these these uh, claims about the medical value of cannabis, and, and I, I'm I'm not a, a physician. I can't begin to to weigh. The merits, although I do know a lot of people who use it and see benefits, including veterans. But um, the, the idea of this sort of super pot, um, A, it, it gave me something um, – it gave me kind of a bigger story to, to tell. Um, but it also was just sort of fun to, 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 to riff off all of these trends. Um, and with biotechnology growing, I, I'm sure someone will come up with some crazy form of weed that will you know, do something that – you know, I, I just, you know, in a way, it's a sort, of, it's a way to sort of peek into the future to, to, to see. And we'll have to wait and see what that looks like. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Nick Petrie's latest book, Light It Up, featuring ex-Marine Peter Ash, is a novel set in Colorado's marijuana industry. We'll be back. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. bite into a juicy heirloom tomato from a local farmer's market and you could be chewing on a bit of history and cross-cultural exchange. That's because someone may have collected, saved, and shared the tomato seeds. Julia Coffey of Seeds Trust in Denver says it's important to save and share seeds by... Getting a group together to grow things that they're really good at growing that respond really well to our specific environment. 
You can save seeds on a walk. You can save seeds if you have a patio garden, a backyard garden, or even a more elaborate in-depth growing operation. One of the top seed savers in the nation is John Quakendall. For the last 60 years, he's collected seeds and their stories around Appalachia in the South. He and Coffee will be talking about seed saving at an Earth Day event in Denver this weekend. He's on the line from Tennessee. John, welcome. Good morning. Wonderful to be here. Well, first off, why collect seeds and their stories? Well, they're so important because they're a link with our past. As a seed saver, we do what's called memory banking. In other words, if I come to you to collect a seed, I want to know your name, your history, the history of the seed, where did it come from, how was it grown, and any family history or important information that goes along with it, and that is referred to as memory banking. Give us an example of memory banking. What do you mean by that? A real good example is a field pea that I got years ago from Charleston, South Carolina. It's called the wash day pea. Now, it's just an ordinary, very small pea, yellowish tan color. And on wash day, the women had a real job of it. They had to be up 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. They had to fire those cast iron kettles. Lye soap was shaved into it, paddles to stir it, battling boards to beat the dirt out with. So at the end of the day, after wringing those clothes out and hanging them up, they were in no mood to cook us fellas a big old supper. So what we were going to get is what might be referred to as one of the first fast foods. wasn't drive through but it was a fast food. And the little wash day pea would cook up approximately the same time as you could bake a pone of cornbread. So on wash day, that was very commonly served. And so did that seed kind of fall out of use and then you found it through, through some of these uh, expeditions you've been on? A fellow seed saver down in South Carolina sent it to me. A lot of things went out of favor. For instance, wash day, when it ceased to be, we had have our modern uh, washing machines now. There was no longer any need for that. But, John, seeds don't always come to you, as, as you've said. Uh, sometimes you have to go looking for them. And another one of these seeds that you found is called the unknown pea. Yes, the unknown pea was commonly grown in Washington Parish, Louisiana, at the end of the 1800s and on into the 1900s. And it was called the unknown pea because no one knew where it came from. It didn't have any name, but it was commonly grown by the farmers in the parish. You know, corn takes a lot of nitrogen out of the soil, so peas are very good nitrogen fixers, and they help replace it. It made a good companion planting. And most of your farmers in the parish grew it as a hay crop, a soil builder, grew it in the corn, and also as a food. It was a very delicious pea. And why is it important to save seeds like this? I mean, we have plenty of seeds today, don't we, that, that grow corn and tomatoes and things like that? Most of them don't have very good flavor. Now, you talk about your tomatoes. Your tomatoes today, the ones you get in the winter, are made out of plastic and styrofoam. There's only one group of people that love those tomatoes. That's your baseball teams. They use them for batting practice when they're green. You couldn't put a scratch or a dent on one and about the same flavor. And so saving seeds, of course, will bring a a variety of flavors, it sounds like, to you. They bring back memories. It's cultural. It's almost like you could equate it to going to an art museum. If you took all of the Rembrandts and Vermeers out of the museum and you only had your latest modern art, what kind of a museum would it be? It'd be an awful lot missing in our history. It's part of our history, heritage, culture, way of life. So we're working to preserve that. My biggest regret is that we didn't start way over 100 years ago when there was so much of it still available. And the families that I collect so many of these heirlooms from, they tell the stories of going back to their grandfathers, great-grandfathers. 
and several generations before them, how they grew them, what they were used for. In the early days in the mountainous regions like East Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, Western North Carolina, those were very remote rural areas, and everything that they grew they had to save the seed of. You were totally self-reliant. If you didn't have the seed, you, you didn't grow it. So it was very, very important. They were seed savers by necessity. There's a large vault in Norway where a huge variety of seeds are stored. You've called it a kind of Noah's Ark of seed that could potentially restart agriculture if there was ever a huge catastrophe. But is that something that your seeds could also do? Well, anyone's could. If you have your family heirlooms that you've saved, a lot of people I've noticed in collecting, they might just have one tomato or one bean. Others will have numerous varieties, but they're all so important. The person that has one, they might have one, and that person could possibly be the only person that has that variety. So I don't judge according to how many you have. It's just it's that, that you're saving something at all, that all of us are working to that end. And there's so much more interest now. I refer to these times as a real renaissance in that field. It's not just a passing fad. When you once discover what a real tomato tastes like or a real bean, then it's awfully hard to go back to plastic again. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with one of the top seed savers in the nation. His name is John Koikendall. He'll be in Denver this weekend talking about seed saving at an Earth Day event. So when you're gathering these histories of these seeds, do you jot them down in a computer? Where do you keep uh, all your notes? I wouldn't know how to turn a computer on. I have hundreds of notebooks that are filled with drawings, illustrations, stories, histories, anything that I can get from a potential seed saver, someone that's passed these down. I record their stories and their histories. How many notebooks do you have? I have no idea. There's an awful lot of them. Last night, the cat knocked about 30 of them off on the floor from the <laughs> nightstand, so they're, they're everywhere. <laughs> they're everywhere. And so you say you do drawings of things. Are, they, are, are you drawing uh, memories that people have, or, or what are you drawing? Well, I'll draw portraits of the people that give me the seeds, farm scenes, illustrations of the variety, any kind of information that's passed on. I try to record it as best I can. And one of my things, too, with recording, like here in the mountains of East Tennessee— I recorded in the old English dialect that's used, so it's interesting to pass that on down as well. If you just wrote it in common English, it would lose all of its character and meanings. So I love recording things in the old speech. What do you mean? Can you give me an example of that? Well, a lot of it, I say, is, is pure old English. They'll use uh, his and hern, yorn, iron, all kinds of terms like that, nari, nary. These are all terms. You can, you can read those in Chaucer's writings. I can remember years ago, there was a lady that was a school teacher up in the Smoky Mountains, and she had a one-room school house, and one little girl came down to her desk, and she said uh, she was having trouble with her lessons, and she said, Wilt thou help me? Old English for will you help me? Formal. So this, these are things that were brought over in the 1700s, and a lot of that old language has remained in the mountains. I've read that every seed that you have, you treat like it's the last. Why is that? I feel like it's my re personal responsibility. It'd be kind of like adopting an orphan. Once you've got it, it's yours. You're responsible for taking care of that. I'll tell you a good example of that. There was a lady whose family moved to Oregon in the 1890s, 
And they took a family bean with them, and the family name was Noble. So this bean was referred to as the Noble Bean. Down through the years, they grew it up until around 20 years ago. And they stopped, and one of the family members decided to revive that. Well, she had found about 300 seeds in a coffee can out in the shed, and she couldn't get any of them to come up. And she sent them to Bill Best because she knew that he was a well-respected source in that area. And Bill Best is a fellow seed collector based out of Kentucky. And he planted about 200 of them, and he was able to get six to come up. Of the six, two died immediately. One succumbed to poor seedling vigor. And in the end, he had one healthy vine that produced only six seeds. But at least it was six viable seeds. And I was up for a visit. And he gave me one seed in a little package. He said, here, take this home. Well, that's not much pressure, is it? It reminds me, if you were baseball fans, like uh, being a relief pitcher coming on in the ninth inning with the bases loaded, nobody out, and you got a one-run lead. There's no room for a mistake anywhere. That's the way I felt about that bean. I nurtured that in a, a little pot, got it up about 12 inches high, finally put it outside in a compost pile with a big stake and a little rabbit fencing around it. And that plant produced 380 seeds just from that one plant, the beans off of that. So I was so proud of that because I knew that this is one that's rescued from uh, extinction. Bill Best had good luck with his, too. We love success stories like that. Sometimes it's cutting it awful close. That's like (laughs) one bean away from extinction. What does our future hold for seeds and crops, do you think? Are, Are you optimistic? Yes, I am. I think we're making a a real comeback. We got so far off base in a lot of ways, and I'm speaking of food crops. Two good examples of that are your beans and tomatoes. When they started discovering they could ship uh, tomatoes 2,000 miles somewhere or at any point in the country, they had to significantly toughen the hulls of those uh, tomatoes for mechanical harvest, shipping, and shelf life. Now, they did a great job of that. Of course, you can't eat the thing. It has no flavor at all. But, I mean, it ships well. You can send it up to New York City, put it in a warehouse in New Jersey for six weeks, then gas it. It'll turn red, and you send it on over to the supermarkets. But that uh, that is beginning to fade because people are discovering what a real tomato is. I'll tell you a quick funny story. Bill Best, last fall, he had uh, a big ochre crop did well, and it went right up to frost. Well, the tomatoes, his wonderful heirloom tomatoes, were already finished. He and his wife love uh, fried okra, cornmeal, breaded, and then take those beautiful big red tomatoes sliced and put them on top of that, and the juice and flavor runs down, and it's just a heavenly dish. Well, they were out of the tomatoes, and Mrs. Best said, for just one time, let's go down to the store and buy a few of those undesirables. And so he did. He went down, and they had their dish. They sliced them, put it on top of the okra. Not one drop of juice came out. They tasted terrible. So they took them out the next morning and threw them out in the chicken lot. Chickens love his heirloom tomatoes. They'll fight over those things. They come running up. So they threw these uh, these plastic tomatoes out there. The chickens ran up, stuck their beaks in there, and immediately stuck their beaks up in the air and walked off. <laughs> Wouldn't touch them. Now, that's a pretty good advertisement right there. Yeah, for the fact that these heirloom tomatoes and things are (laughs) are tastier than what you may find in a supermarket. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up here, uh, you have a song that's kind of an ode to Butter Beans that's based on the melody of an old hymn. And I wonder if you would uh, sing a little bit of it for us as we leave. 
Well, this came from Mr. Homer Graves, an old friend of mine down in Washington Parish, and it comes from the old hymn, Just a Closer Walk with Thee. And it goes something like this, excuse my voice. Just a bowl of butter beans, pass the cornbread if you please. I don't want no collard greens, just a bowl of good old butter beans. Thanks so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it. It's been a wonderful time. I always say I love to preach the seed gospel. Master Gardener and Seed Saver John Koikendall. He'll speak at a Slow Food Denver Earth Day event this Sunday at Infinite Monkey Theorem. A documentary about his work will also be screened. And that's our show. Thanks to Executive Editor Ryan Warner and Managing Producer Rachel Estabrook. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Have a great day. Thank you.